Welcome to Moonshot, I'm Christopher Lawson. And today on the show, I wanted to revisit an episode that we published a while back on the idea of a universal basic income. In today's world, where everyone is struggling to deal with the fallout from COVID-19, governments are looking to provide certainty to their economies. And one of the popular methods of doing that seems to be through some kind of employment guarantee. That is, either paying for a portion of people's wages or providing a significant safety net that employees who have lost their jobs can fall back on to cover expenses. The world we're living in right now is the closest we've ever come to the idea of a universal basic income, and the next six months will provide a fascinating experiment as to what that could look like. So today's episode of Moonshot is all about money. It was first published in November of 2018, but I think you'll agree it's highly relevant to our current situation. So, on with the show. This is Moonshot. I'm Christopher Lawson. And I'm Andrew Moon. And this episode is about money. And for many of us, it feels like we're always spending everything we earn. House prices are going up. The cost of public transport seems to keep rising. We're working harder and harder and harder. Yet, we never seem to be earning more and we're never getting ahead. The gap between the rich and the poor is widening, making it far more challenging for people to live. But what if there was a better way? Free money for everybody. That's the simple version. The more elaborate is a lump sum of income that is distributed unconditionally without any strings attached to every person in a country, every month. That's Federico Pistono talking about the idea of a universal basic income. It's the concept that everyone, no matter what income bracket they're in, would get a base level of money on a regular basis to help cover basic living expenses. But would such an idea even fly? How would we implement it and how could it change our societies? That and more coming up after this break. You know, one of our really big goals to achieve is to, you know, kind of bring hope to a lot of people out there who may not have any. You can't quantify hope <laughs> or love. Uh, and, and that's what we're trying to do in a digital fashion, that everyone's loved. And there is hope for a brighter future. This is John Freshen and Brandon Veneta, two of the co-founders of MANA. Which is a digital currency and and is distributed as a basic income to everyone in the world um, based on the criteria of proving that they're a unique human being. Um, if they're over the age of 18, it's through our, our general, the general UBI distribution. And if they're under 18, it's through the, uh, ch- the Children's Savings Program, which um, is actually just being launched this fall. Cryptocurrency is a form of digital money that is used instead of traditional physical cash, If you'd like to know more, check out our two-part episode on digital gold. 
Manor was founded in 2015 and is the world's first universal basic income digital currency. Originally called GrantCoin, Manor is based on blockchain technology. This means that the currency can be directly accessed via a global network of decentralized computers. That means there's no middlemen, no banks, no governments to make a profit off the currency, and it's distributed by the non-profit People's Currency Foundation. Here's Brandon Veneta again. A lot of the UBI advocates have always been pushing for the political government um, to come in and subsidize or um, implement a UBI via credits or uh, tax credits or dividends and social dividends or whatnot. Um, so this is the first time we can create it by, via like the free market, um, which is a beautiful thing. So people can participate if they want to or not. If it's a participatory rather than a forceful endeavor um, from the government side of things. The team at Manor hope to provide an economic system that will alleviate problems such as wealth disparity through a simple web-based platform. Unlike other forms of UBI, Manor aims to create a network where users can actually share their income directly with others. The very first idea of a basic income goes way back to the year 1516, when the book Utopia by Thomas More stated that giving everyone some sort of universal basic provision might lower crime rates as people wouldn't need to resort to stealing in order to sustain their livelihood. And 10 years later, the concept was made into a proposal. Juan Luis Vives wrote to the mayor of the Belgian city of Bruges to ask him to provide the city's population with just enough money to get by from day to day. Fast forward around 450 years to the United States, where Martin Luther King Jr. advocated for having a guaranteed income to try and lift people out of poverty and reduce income inequality. Now one of the answers, it seems to me, is a guaranteed uh annual income, a guaranteed minimum income for all people and for all families of our country. And in the past decade, many in Silicon Valley have been increasingly advocating for implementing a basic income of sorts to give people the freedom to be creative without having to worry about how they pay their bills. One idea uh, is that at a minimum, this won't be the whole solution, but as a minimum, um, we should create a floor. And we should make it so that no one um, is worrying about how they're going to pay for a place to live. Uh, no one has to worry about how they're going to have enough to eat, healthcare. Um, but just give people enough money to have a reasonable quality of life. That is Sam Altman. He's the former chairman of Y Combinator and was speaking at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco in April of 2017. Now, YC is a well-known Silicon Valley startup accelerator that seems to really apply the Midas touch to startups lucky enough to be accepted into their ranks, including Dropbox, Airbnb, Reddit, and many more. YC is known for taking some bold risks, and back in 2016, they announced plans to experiment with implementing a universal basic income to people who lived in the Oakland area of California. That's just across the bridge from San Francisco. The Bay Area has incredibly high housing prices, and so the idea was giving people a basic income would allow them to dream big and create more companies, companies that YC could potentially back. It's also seen as a way for the tech industry to give back to the people that might be impacted by automation. We're going to have a real disruption, and I think for all the people talking about how machine learning technology is going to eliminate jobs, um, there aren't that many talking about what, what do we as the tech industry do um, 
to solve the problem that we're helping to create. One thing that I think every, most people get wrong is that if the robots do come take all the jobs, um, then the cost of living will go down so much that we can afford to do this. After an initial feasibility study ended in 2017, YC are now planning to run a randomised control across two geographic areas in the United States. The way it works is that they will randomly select a number of individuals to be part of the research and will give half the people $1,000 per month, with the other half getting just $50 to cover the time required to fill out some surveys. The plan is to track them over five years to see if they can get meaningful data on what the basic income will actually do for individuals. But Y Combinator isn't the only one experimenting with basic incomes. In Finland, the government ran a trial using a sample of 2,000 unemployed people aged between 25 and 58, who all received 560 euro a month. However, the Finnish government appears to have lost interest, and the trial has been cancelled. But there is a similar trial happening in Ontario, Canada. We want to find out whether a basic income makes a positive difference in people's lives, whether this new approach gives them the ability to begin to achieve their potential, and whether it's an approach that can be adopted across our province as a whole. That was Kathleen Wynne, the former Premier of Ontario. In March 2016, the provincial government committed to funding a trial, with the first participants being onboarded in April 2018. We want to provide simpler and more effective income support and improve outcomes for Ontarians living on low incomes or in poverty. To access Ontario's pilot program, applicants had to attend an information session to see if they were eligible. From there, two control groups were selected by a random lottery. There was the basic income group of 4,000 people who would receive monthly payments, which could total up to $16,989 per year for a single person and over $24,000 for a couple, minus 50% of any income that they earned. And there was a comparison group of an additional 2,000 who received nothing. People from all different income ranges, ages, classes, and circumstances in life were at these info sessions. So 70% of that 4,000 people were working, um, but the other 30%, um, a lot of people were low income um, and were having to rely on some of the social welfare programs. So the two social welfare programs in Ontario are called Ontario Works, or OW, and Ontario Disability Support Program, or ODSP. Um, so a lot of recipients of ODSP and OW um, were also switched on to basic income to see if having just a guaranteed basic income would be better and more effective than the patchwork of these systems because um, neither of those systems are adequate at um, taking care of people and providing for their needs and actually they keep those people in poverty. This is Jesse Gollum, a photographer in Ontario and one of the 4,000 people selected for the pilot program. Before receiving the basic income, Jessie was working four jobs. In the morning, she would walk dogs. In the evening, she would teach piano. And throughout the day, she would try to build her photography business while also working for Photographers Without Borders. The pilot program was scheduled to run for three years. During this time, recipients were to receive a set income every month. For many people, this meant that they could just use their time to explore other job possibilities without the stress of juggling multiple jobs. For Jessie, this allowed her the time to focus on her own business. So $700 a month. That's what I was receiving. That's what you were receiving. Uh, that's a decent yeah. amount of money. Like, what did that mean for you? Like, what did that allow you to be able to do? 
Well, my very, very first thought when I saw that number was my rent is covered. Um, like that amount completely covers like my rent and my bills. It doesn't cover like my food or my car expenses or any, any of the other costs um, associated with living. But I was still like, that's a tremendous thing. Um, so it was really tremendous. It was a huge relief to be able to drop down to two jobs and focus completely on my own personal business and my role at Photographers Without Borders. That's amazing. Like, and that, that's one of the things that, that people in technology circles talk about a lot with the idea of having yeah. a basic income is that it gives you the freedom to be able to explore oh, yeah. other ideas. So, so, that's obviously something that you resonated with. Oh, yes. It really, it really did. And, and it was a huge relief. Honestly, it's something I've been waiting for for years. Um, it's so stressful to start a business. And even like right now, I'm feeling the stress because like my computer is uh, is getting older and the technology is wearing out and my camera is getting older and I simply don't have the revenue to keep up with technology and replace my equipment. So having that basic income and having that time to just devote fully into my business um, so I could be able to, to, to get new equipment and continue to work full time as a photographer was amazing it was it was literally a dream come true were, were there any like stipulations on what you need to spend the money on or was it that like here's the money no. you can do what you want yeah there was no stipulations and that's kind of the beauty of the program because like i find that some of the problems with um ow or odsc um like these support programs ontario has is that there's so much bureaucracy surrounding it and caseworkers are monitoring everything you spend it on and if you spend that money in the way that they aren't satisfied, then they can just cut it and take it away. Um, so the only stipulation was like, should your employment status change? Like, should you be able to get more work and require less money? Or should you, um, or if you are working less and require more money that you just let them know and it will be adjusted accordingly. So was, my goal was to work myself into a point where I would no longer need basic income. Um, and it, I had a three year plan in order to do that. Um, based on the length of the study um, that we were aware of and how long like the timeline was that we were going to be on this program. And we'll continue our look at this idea of giving people a basic income right after this break. Welcome back to Moonshot, I'm Andrew Moon. And before the break, we were talking to Jessie Gollum about the basic income pilot program she was a part of in Ontario. Now, Jessie felt the program helped her, but we wanted to know what other people thought. So we went to the streets of Melbourne, Australia to find out. I, I really like the idea of it. Um, but again, I wouldn't want it to be used as a replacement for the welfare state, which I think... Um, a lot of models have proposed. Free money, I love free money. Kind of hard to see how that would work, like logistically, but I reckon if everyone gets a, a level of welfare, um, I guess it would be beneficial. I think that would be quite good because a lot of people don't have the same um, chances that others have, so it might be good to give them the same basis to start things out on. Yeah, I'd probably be very interested in it, but I'd be worried about what would be you'd have to do to get it i think in terms of quality of life for everyone yeah universal basic income is good um i don't know how it'd work i don't know what would incentivize 
people to work really hard and work long hours when they could potentially not do a whole lot and still have their basic income. Um, I don't think it'd happen in the future. It might, I don't know. I think it'd be maybe a tough sell to a lot of people in society. I would say that would be a kind of utopian society or, or something like that that's pretty much uh, foreign to our capitalist uh, existence we live in. So there would still be a catch because we're a capitalist society and uh, the government would never do that without some sort of uh, you know, motiv- motivation to actually make some sort of money. Part of the problem with implementing a universal basic income is that no one can really seem to agree on how best to fund it. Some models of thought are that welfare should be cut to allow UBI to exist, while others believe the wealthy should be taxed more. But how do we pay for it? There's no right answer here because the world is too diverse. Each country has its own individual path to a UBI. The easiest way to pay for a UBI is to end all welfare and use the free funds to finance it. The second way, higher taxes, especially for the very wealthy. In the US, for example, there's been a lot of economic growth, but most of the benefits from it have gone to the richest few percent. Among economists, I think one thing that has has emerged in the last 10 to 15 years is a consensus that uh, providing untied cash benefits is uh, almost always better than uh, providing uh, tied benefits that are tied to spending your money on particular things. This is John Quiggan, Professor of Economics at the University of Queensland. He's been researching short-term policies and the effect they will have on society in the long term. And John believes that in theory, a UBI could be beneficial, but the lack of proper research is hindering the process. There were trials undertaken in the US back in the 70s, which um, uh, were abandoned for reasons that turned out to be mistaken later, but but the end result was that the... Um, End result was that the data was never really properly analysed. So we really, uh, we really haven't got uh, haven't got um, uh, a lot of evidence. Um, and I should say that that uh, within the community supporting various forms of basic income, there are substantial disputes as to what constitutes a, a universal basic income. This lack of a universally agreed upon definition has been a major struggle for many governments and economists. Some people argue that UBI should be used instead of welfare. Others say that it should be used in conjunction with existing welfare programs. And others believe that the UBI should be so high that work becomes completely optional. There's various models proposed about a basic income. Um, some are way more radical than others. Um, and, 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 and we need to sort of pay attention to that because at the moment you've got people from Silicon Valley arguing for a basic income, but the kinds of mo- the, I guess the concern is that, that the kinds of models that might be passed off by um, the elite are ones that um, keep the status quo as is and just sort of keeps us all our heads just above water, you know, just being able to eat, have all the sort of the things just to just keep functioning um, without really radically um, contesting growing inequality and the um, uh, wealth that, that the elites are amassing. This is Dr Elise Klein, a senior lecturer of development studies at the University of Melbourne. Her research looks at economic security with a focus on growing inequality. She argues that while a UBI program could help reduce financial disparity in society, the implementation would need to be done with caution. 
So you wouldn't just sort of whack it on like at a full rate straight up for everybody um, because, you know, you need to get sort of, you need to sort of understand how it's going to impact um, and how it's going to work with other with other social services and other, you know, and other mechanisms in society. So you would um, just increase it over time small, uh, in, a, in, in an incremental way. Now, there's two ways of doing that. Either you give it to everyone and everyone only gets a little bit and that increase over time, or you start with particular cohorts that get the full amount, which would be, you know, quest- there's, there's been sort of talk around it being the same amount as the sort of aged pension. Another obstacle when implementing a UBI is change in governments. The Ontario pilot program was set up by the local Liberal government, but they lost the election this year to the Conservatives. One of the first moves by the Conservatives was to cut the pilot. We're also going to wind down the Ontario Basic Income Research Project, which is clearly not the answer for Ontario families. And we're going to continue to deliver on the promises we made to the people of Ontario. Can you explain how it's supposed to help people more to give them less money in social assistance? Is it just supposed to motivate them more to get off of social, social assistance? Um, people will be receiving 1.5% more as a result of the decision by my government. So they were supposed to get 3% under the previous government. So they are effectively going to get less money than they were supposed to. The, the, the people on ODSP and Ontario Works will receive a 1.5% increase from this government. So I have until March now um, where we'll be getting payments, but still all of that money will be wasted. There will be no research to show and no data. And that was the point of the pilot is to get data, to have the conversation of is a basic income a a good idea? It doesn't help people and is a solution for for like the the social welfare programs in Ontario. Um, And then um, they finally, finally sent out letters in October. Like I only got a letter just a couple of weeks ago, um, where they directly communicated to people saying that the pilot had been cancelled. So complete lack of communication, lack of compassion or help, um, I consider a human rights violation, um, how they've treated us. You know that the payments are going to be ending relatively soon. It's not that long uh, until March. So are you starting to plan for like how how you're going to get by without having to like take on more work or will you have to go back to to doing four jobs? I've already started to pick up those jobs again in preparation for when the payments stop. Um, So there's been a lot of stress and um, when it happened, um, when I found out about the cancellation, um, rightfully so, I was furious. Um, And so I decided to react as fast as I can um, and what I did is I started reaching out. I wanted to find other people like myself who are recipients of basic income and find out what were they using the money for. Um, so I started doing a portrait series where I got people to hold cardboard signs and write on the signs in their own handwriting with markers what they were using the money for and how it was making their life better. Um, so I've thrown myself into this project and it's really taken a complete life of its own. It's gone viral all over Ontario and in Canada, and has, has even drawn international attention, um, which is very um, interesting to see. Um, but then it also, what has happened, it's sort of put a human face to a political issue. So it's more than just numbers. It's more than just 4,000 people receiving mo- this X amount of dollars. It's like, these are the names of these people. This is what they were using the money for. And like, these are their faces. Some of you might be asking, why do we even need to talk about a basic income? Many governments already have welfare programs to help those who need it. 
and those who aren't on welfare are likely earning the money that they need to pay the bills. But as Elise explains, a basic income could be important for society to function together as a whole. I mean, there's different arguments about what and why a basic income um, is is important. Um, I mean, at the very sort of ba- basis, it's about an economic floor. So having some some uh, an economic base that people won't fall through the cracks so that you have this payment no matter what happens to you in, in life, that you'll always have this payment. Um, and so at the very basic basis, it's a piece of economic, it's, it's about economic security. Wealth is socially generated and so this idea that these people have done it all through off the backs of their hard work is needs to be contested and, um, you know, this wealth needs to be better distributed um, because it's, yeah, it's, it's created by all of us. And I think you wrote something about this, about this idea that it needs to be seen more as like a dividend um, for the community rather than rather than just like a, like another welfare payment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, that I mean, that's sort of this idea that wealth is created socially um, sort of underpins the argument that a basic income is a right. It is a it's a dividend. It's not it's not just sort of a a grant that people it's bestowed on people because they're struggling that it's part of being a human it's it's the fact that we're all socially connected that we're all part of generating wealth and therefore people have an entitlement there's an inheritance um, to the wealth that's generated this is also a core focus for manor john and brandon see a basic level of income being important to making sure people can make ends meet but such a system would never work if it's complicated to access or use. That's a problem the MANA team are very aware of. Here's John Freshen again. We really want to attract your everyday person. I mean, it's critical to the nature of our project that, that you know, almost anyone can, can understand and use what we're doing. So that, that's a, a fundamental goal of ours. Is, is, and it's one of the you know, key characteristics of everything we're, we're trying to do is creating something that is very user-friendly and, and that you don't have to understand the, the complexities of, of how cryptocurrency works to utilize it, but you can benefit from, from the clear uh, improvements to your life that, that this technology can make. So, you know, that's, that's really what we're aiming to do and, and a lot of our next steps are trying to accomplish with, with actually giving real utility and use cases for this and, and making it so easy for people to use that it's not really any different than maybe logging into their PayPal or Facebook or any of their other accounts that they're they're used to using. This whole endeavor is a moving, living, breathing project that has to evolve in time uh, to really make the impact that it can. One of the hurdles that MANA faces is the real-life value for users. Once you hand out the mana, at what point does it actually become valuable to even live off? At the moment, it doesn't hold much intrinsic value at all. Both John and Brandon told me that it's important to get people trading the currency and using it to buy their food or pay their rent, but that it isn't designed for general purchases. They're also rolling it out to some refugee camps because they feel that people in those situations could use the finances. Which made me wonder... Is a refugee camp the ideal place to actually test a basic income? After all, if you already have wealth in US dollars, the incentive to start using a cryptocurrency is significantly less. Yet if you have nothing, no money, no US dollars to your name, the cryptocurrency might actually hold some kind of intrinsic value, so the threshold might be lower. Yeah, and what is relative value at that point? I mean, if you have a whole community is suddenly gaining 
this, this man a currency and they're, they have nothing else, you know, then suddenly they might actually have a currency they can interact with each other with. So, so maybe within these small ecosystems, suddenly mana is valuable because they actually have a currency that, that is meaningful to them where otherwise they may not. UBI is not like uh, a magic wand to these problems that we're up against. UBI is just the first layer as you unpeel this onion. There are multiple layers that we have to unpack. Just like any big idea that could change the fundamental structure of society, people have mixed feelings about how a universal basic income could affect them. I think some people get challenged by the idea of no work um, or no formal work. Um, uh, and But I think it's important to acknowledge that there's already so many people doing all sorts of work. So I think this sort of um, de-linking that, um, yeah, having economic security with labour is a really exciting proposition because it then does allow people to have time to engage and be productive in ways that are valuable to them. I personally would find that amazing, just, you know, running a startup to be able to then not have to think about, well, how am I going to pay my rent every month to like to take that stress out? That would make a huge difference. And I'm sure plenty of other people would, uh, would feel the same way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's right. Um, you know, journalists and, and you know, there's all and cre- people, all creative people who are already, you know, it's, that's a precarious life because people's productive labour and art and, you know, creative pursuits are so important but yet are not valued properly in the sort of capitalist workforce. Um, some people are but, but a lot of people aren't and so, you know, just having that sort of base so that you can do your thing and, look, if you can, you can get other work and you can do other stuff, awesome, that's great use it and top it top up the basic income but um not everyone's that not everyone's that lucky so i think it is important i think it, it gives you know people options to do productive stuff that's not always um you know the options at the moment to do that stuff are not always there it's difficult to say if there will ever be one standard universal basic income. Most studies have been cut short, and no one can seem to agree on what it is or how it should be implemented. When UBI comes into context and conversation, some people have knee-jerk reactions um, to it, and uh, I would just suggest to really dive in a little deeper uh, if some come into play where it's a negative connotation to UBI. Uh, people throw terms like socialist out there, but this is a very pro-market uh, concept and uh, will help and save capitalism because there are two trajectories that are taking place um, and there's one very dark place that humanity can go or there's a very fruitful, abundant place and we're aiming towards that abundant, fruitful uh, future for these next generations to come. Many thanks to our guests in this episode, Dr. Elise Klein from the University of Melbourne, Professor John Quiggin from the University of Queensland, John Freshen and Brandon Veneta from MANA, and Jessie Gollum. You can check out Jessie's Humans of Basic Income series on her website, jessiegollum.com. Moonshot is a production of Lawson Media, and this episode was hosted by me, Christopher Lawson, and also Andrew Moon. Research for this episode by Caroline Ho and Jasmine Mee Lee. Our amazing cover artwork is by Andrew Millist, and our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. 
If you want to get in touch with us at the show, you can send us your feedback or ideas to moonshot at lawson.media. And if you enjoyed this episode and many of the other episodes that we've put together, we'd love it if you'd consider making a recurring monthly donation. It helps us cover the costs and improve the quality of the production. You can find out more on our website, moonshot.audio slash donate. You can also buy your very own Moonshot merch at podmerch.co. We'll be back after Easter with another episode of Moonshot. Stay safe and we'll speak to you soon.